morning, everybody. Welcome to Dig Deep. One of my favorite girl power scenes from a movie is at the end of the movie Apocalypto. If you haven't seen the 2006 film, I don't know that I necessarily recommend it. It is definitely one of the most violent movies I've ever seen. Not exactly a chick flick, but it might be worth going on YouTube and watching just this scene that I'm about to describe later today. If you haven't seen it, the film is set in Yucatan, Mexico in 1502, and the story centers on a young Mesoamerican hunter named Jaguar Paw and his family. Early on in the film, this family and their peaceful village are attacked by Mayan warriors who kill and destroy most of the tribe while capturing several of the men in the village and leading them back to their Mayan city to serve as human sacrifices to the Mayan gods. Like I said, one of the most violent movies I've ever seen. As the Mayan warriors are attacking the village, Jaguar Paw takes his young, very pregnant wife and his toddler son, and he lowers them deep into a pit in the ground. It appears to be a well or cistern that the village had used for collecting water, and he hides them in there in hopes of protecting them from the enemy. Once they are safely down in the bottom of the pit, he returns to fight alongside his fellow tribesmen, but he is captured and he's led away, leaving his wife and his young son trapped deep in the pit. The rest of the film follows Jaguar Paw as he is led to the Mayan city, as he watches most of his friends be killed as human sacrifices, and then he and just a few of his friends are used as human targets in a sort of cruel hunting for sport game. But his enemies find that Jaguar Paw is no ordinary prisoner, and with the heroic help of his friends, he escapes, and he runs into the jungle, hunted all the way, sprinting, trying to get back to his family. As his story unfolds, we are taken back to that pit from time to time to check on this young pregnant wife, and she is awesome. Girl is hard core. In one scene, she's trying to climb out of the pit. She's trying to find rocks and vines, but the pit is way too deep and the sides are too slippery and she falls down and gets injured. She's wincing in pain, but she keeps moving forward. In another scene, they discover that they are in a pit with a wild animal, but she takes a club, kills the thing, somehow surviving yet another day. So while Jaguar Paw is sprinting through the jungle, first hunted by these Mayan warriors, and then eventually hunted by, you guessed it, an actual jaguar, as if things couldn't get any worse, a rainstorm rolls in and it begins to pour. And suddenly they show his face and this look of understanding and terror comes across his face as we realize his wife is hiding in a well, in a cistern in the ground that is intended to fill up with rainwater. So he sprints faster than ever back toward his family. When we return to the pit, it's flooding rapidly with water, and this young pregnant woman has her toddler son around her neck. She's treading water and desperately clinging to vines and trying to stand on her tippy toes on rocks as the water level continues to rise. And then the inevitable happens. She goes into labor. And as her husband fights for his life in the jungle, his wife begins to push. And in the most amazing birth scene I think I've ever seen in a movie, she delivers her second son in a water birth in the pit 
with her toddler son around her neck. One of my favorite parts of the movie is the look on the toddler son's face when she brings this baby out from under the water. He's like, what the what just happened? Jaguar Paul finally returns, bloody and panting, to the pit, and as he looks over the side, his face is filled with intense fear, but it shifts to one of hope as the camera cuts to his wife holding both of their sons with all of their heads just above water. She's exhausted, but she's victorious. She's fragile and beautiful, but she's a warrior just like her husband. It makes you proud to be a woman. But the craziest part is that then the camera zooms out and we see that this whole time she's been wearing jelly shoes. No, but that was awesome last week, wasn't it? Didn't you guys love Peggy's story? If you weren't here last week, you're thinking, I don't get it. Didn't she say this movie was set in 1502? Here's what I love about that scene and about that movie, even though it is incredibly violent. Even in the midst of all of the chaos and all of the violence and all the suffering, there's hope. There's hope. And so here's our main point for today. I'm just going to tell you right up front, and I encourage you to write this down. God can grow good things in the pit. God can grow good things in the pit. So let's pick up where we left off in Joseph's story in Genesis 41. We saw last week that Joseph has finally been taken out of the pit and given the opportunity of a lifetime to interpret two dreams for Pharaoh and present an action plan that will save all of Egypt from famine and many of the surrounding nations as well. Pharaoh is so thrilled with Joseph and his plan that he says to him in verse 41, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and people shouted before him, Make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And so we see in this passage another robe in this story. And we see it's, it's sort of a symbol of honor and favor. Joseph's father gave him one. His brothers took it away. Potiphar clothed him in one. Potiphar's wife took it away. And each time these robes were given and then taken away in Joseph's life, Joseph's life goes from peak to pit and peak to pit over and over again. And now Pharaoh has given him the greatest robe of all, the greatest honor and favor that he has ever experienced. And Joseph is finally enjoying a peak in his life again. And in verses 44 to 49, we read how wonderful this peak really is. Joseph and the land of, land of Egypt enjoy seven years of abundance. And that abundance appears in many forms. In Joseph's life, he experiences that abundance by getting married. He has two sons, and he's finally enjoying a title, a paycheck, honor, respect, and fulfillment in his work. And as he looks back over the last 13 years, 13 years, he shares his biggest takeaways in the form of naming his sons. And so for those of you who are in the pit right now, I think you and I will benefit from the hindsight that Joseph is able to have by looking back at the last 13 years that he spent in the pit. 
In verse 51, Joseph named his firstborn son Manasseh and said, it is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. Now, Joseph doesn't mean here that he has literally forgotten his father and his brothers and his home. Joseph's brothers and his father are about to re-enter the story, and we're going to see that Joseph has definitely not forgotten anything about the past. When that button is pushed in the next chapter, we see that his wound is as fresh as ever. So what does Joseph mean when he says, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household? Well, any woman who has gone through labor and delivery knows what Joseph means by forget here. Because with each of my deliveries, if your experience is like mine, there was a moment during labor when I turned to my husband and grabbed him by the shirt and said, you, you did this to me. Never, ever again. Never again. But God, in his wisdom, somehow allows us to forget just a little bit. And in just a few short months, the memory of the pain is just a little bit quieter. We forget. And praise God for that forgetfulness. It's why we have four kids. But that's what Joseph means here. He's saying God has quieted the memory of my pain. The intensity of the grief has loosened its hold on Joseph's heart a little bit. I love the way my mom describes us. She very wisely says that grief is a lot like labor in reverse. The pain is like contractions that at first are unbearably intense and close together. They stop you in your tracks and you can't move. You can barely breathe. It's difficult for you to keep your head. But with time, they gradually spread out. They become a little bit quieter. You won't always have to pull over on the side of the road or cry yourself to sleep every single night. You will breathe again someday. The pain will always be there, but it will not always be this unbearably intense. I think that's what Joseph means when he names his first son. He's acknowledging that his pain will always be there, but that God has quieted the memory of that pain. And he's allowed him some breaks in between the contractions of pain where he's able to smile again. He's able to feel the sunshine on his face again. He's able to enjoy life again. Which leads to Joseph's naming of his second son. In verse 52, he names his second son Ephraim. He says, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. God can grow good things in the pit. And so for those of you who are in the pit right now, I think you need to hear this today. God can grow good things in the pit. There is hope. I believe God has both the power and the desire to make you fruitful in the land of your suffering. He is the God who can make beautiful things out of ashes. And there are some beautiful things that seem to grow best in the soil of suffering. And we play a part, I believe, in the growth of that fruit. I shared with you all 
that I have experienced the pit of depression in my life, and I want you to know that I've only been willing to use that word, the D word, in just the last year of my life. I've always found uh, softer names for it, like baby blues or maybe some seasonal affect, or I would just say it was a dark time in my life. But as many times as I've looked someone in the eyes who has suffered in that same pit and told them that there was no shame in it, I wasn't living in freedom from that shame myself, which is why I refused to call it what it was. In those times in my life, my husband, since being married, my husband has been the hands and feet of God to me in those seasons. And in the last year, he lovingly challenged me to do something when I was experiencing a bout of depression that I want to hand off to you as a challenge for whatever pit you're facing in your life right now. I think this is an exercise that would benefit all of us. Before he presented the challenge, he reminded me of a recent beach trip that we had taken in the past few years. And when Ben and I go to the beach, he spends about 90% of his time in the water, and I spend 90% of my time on a lounge chair, either sleeping or reading a book. I see some heads nodding. Can I get an amen for that? Clearly. But he's in the water all the time. And usually he rides waves as much as possible. But on this particular beach trip, the waves were too small for him to ride. So he spent most of his time snorkeling in search for treasures to bring home to our kids. But he quickly discovered that the best shells were right where the small waves were breaking against the shore. And so he would try to grab something, but it would be washed right out of reach just as he would go to grab it. So instead, he started just grabbing handfuls of sand and shells from that area and bringing them up onto the shore to sift through later. And his efforts yielded dozens of beautiful shells that our kids absolutely adored, best free souvenirs ever, by the way. And he shared that memory with me, and he said, Jess, there are treasures at the bottom of this ocean that you probably can't see right now. So start grabbing handfuls of sand and mud and silt and ask yourself the question, what do I want to bring up from the bottom of the ocean? He says, don't worry about making sense of all of it now. You won't be able to. You can sift through it all later when you're safe on the shore and you have your bearings again. But what do I want to bring up from the bottom of the ocean? What do you want to bring up from the bottom of the pit? Because what Ben was saying to me is also true for you. There are beautiful things that can be grown in the pit that honestly just can't be grown anywhere else. But you have to let God show you what he wants you to bring up. Let him in there with you. Ask him what he wants to grow in this pit in your life. One of the best ways to do this, I've found, is by journaling. Some people love journaling. I do not love journaling. It is a discipline for me. I don't really know why, but it is hard for me to sit myself down and make myself write out what I'm thinking and feeling and learning. For some of you, if, if writing in an actual journal is not your style, you can start a Google Doc. I have a Google Doc on my drive that is titled, what do I want to bring up from the bottom of the ocean? 
and it's a place where I can free journal because it's more likely for me to do it there than sitting and writing in some beautiful, ornate journal somewhere. So wherever you do it, start asking yourself the question, what do I want to bring up from the bottom of the ocean? What do I want to bring out of the bottom of this pit? And you can sift through it all later, but for now, grab handfuls of stuff, anything that you're seeing, anything that you're learning, any way that you sense that God might be moving in your life, write it down. I promise you that when you revisit those words later on down the road, you will have new perspective on what God has done, what beautiful things he has grown, how he has changed you and the world around you for the better, even in the midst of your suffering even in the midst of the pit. Ask him, what do you want to show me? How do you want to use this pain for good in my life or the lives of others? And so I want to tell you just a few of the beautiful shells, the beautiful things that I found when I've sifted through my own pit is a deeper compassion for those who suffer with mental health issues. A deep, deep gratitude for my husband, most of all, for my family and close friends, for the people that held me up when I couldn't stand. Humility, a deeper dependence on God. I like to think that I am one tough chick and that I could deliver a baby in a pit in the ground if I needed to. I am woman, hear me roar. But those experiences have cultivated in me a very real humility that helps me to see just how fragile I am, just how much I need God. And an increased wisdom, not being cavalier in this life or taking this life for granted, but living it well, living with intentionality and discipline and wisdom. Now, those are all great things. They're fruit that I see in my life, but I would not do it again. <laughs> I would not have chosen that path, but I have to acknowledge that there is fruit that has been grown in the soil of suffering in my life, and fruit is meant to be eaten and enjoyed. It's meant to be used. It's not just some beautiful thing that's on a tree and we look at and go, oh, isn't that nice? Fruit is meant to sustain us, to give us life, to give life to those around us, God has given Joseph the fruit of a family that he gets to enjoy, purpose in his work, honor and recognition, but perhaps the most significant fruit that we see in Joseph's life is that God has used him to be a part of the saving of millions of people from starvation. Back to Genesis 41, starting in verse 53, the seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt, there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was very severe everywhere." Joseph is, has been faithfully collecting the harvest. He has not just prepared himself, but the whole nation of Egypt, and now is giving food to the whole known world at that time in that region. God has used Joseph's pain and suffering to save millions of people's lives. 
And if it were me, I'd say that's great. But I wish you'd chosen somebody else. Or why did it have to involve so much suffering? Couldn't you have done that miracle and saved those nations any way you wanted to? Why me? Why this way? But we see in Joseph's naming of his sons that that's not his perspective. See, there's a common thread in both of his sons' names, and it's the phrase, God has made me. God has made me. Both of his sons' names point to the truth that God is the one who is ultimately in control. In these four words, we hear Joseph's heart of surrender, saying, God has made me. Joseph knows that God has been with him, that God is in control, and that God is working in the world and in his life. And that's difficult for me. Because if God really is truly in control, why does he let his loved ones suffer? Couldn't he have saved all those people from starvation another way? Certainly he could. Why did he let Joseph suffer all those years and years? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't like not knowing, but I have to be honest with you and tell you I don't know. I don't understand it, and I'm coming to accept in my life that I won't know or understand a lot of those things this side of heaven. I don't know why you're facing the pain that you're facing in your life. I don't understand why God would allow you to suffer in that way, but I do know this. I have seen God grow beautiful fruit in the soil of suffering. God can grow good things in the pit. In fact, the greatest fruit that God has ever produced was grown in the pit of the grave. See, when Jesus willingly went to the cross to die for you and for me and was laid in the pit in a dark cave in the earth, the entrance sealed by a large stone, the seeds of life and salvation were being planted. Jesus' friend and one of his closest followers, Peter, preached a message to thousands of people after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. And Peter knew what it was like to be in the pit. He had known the pit of fear and doubt and shame. He had denied that he even knew Jesus because he was afraid of the future. But then he saw the resurrected Jesus and everything changed and he had hope and he preached that message of hope to thousands of of people. He says in Acts 2, starting in verse 24, but God raised Jesus from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then Peter quotes King David in Psalm 16. And we know King David knew a lot about life in the pit as well. And Peter quotes him and says, I saw the Lord always before me, Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope. 
because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. See, we will all face suffering in this life, but God is the only one who can redeem that suffering and lead us on the paths to life. He is the only one who can make beautiful things out of ashes and can grow fruit in the soil of our suffering. If you are in a place in your life right now where you need that reminder, you need that hope, I want to tell you, do not miss next week. We have a surprise in store for you that I'm not going to spoil for you right now, but do not miss next week. It is going to be a powerful, powerful week together. But I want to encourage you this morning to place your hope in the one who brought the gift of eternal life out of the pit of the grave. God can grow good things in the pit. And so as we close, I just want to give you two discussion questions for your time this morning. The first is this, have you ever seen God grow something good in a pit? Have you ever seen God grow something good in a pit? And the second is, what do you want to bring up with you from the bottom of the pit? What do you want to bring up with you from the bottom of the pit? Let's pray together. God, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for the hope that you offer us, that even in the midst of our suffering and our questions and unknowns about why things are the way that they are, we see that you are growing good things even in the pit. Help us to trust you. Help us to look for the work that you're doing in our lives and around us so that we can produce that fruit both for our benefit and for the benefit of people around us, but ultimately for your glory. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.